0: I'm happy to introduce my friend, Reynolds, to you, but I'm not sure how much I have to introduce him because um, either from being here for various things, uh, you may have already met him, or if you've been involved in uh, anything that Durham Cares is doing around town, which is quite a bit, uh, you might have have met Reynolds. I met Reynolds uh, in my time at Duke Divinity School. It's getting to be a long time ago. really inspired by the work that he was doing then and and how the Lord has been using um, him and his family and his friends uh, since then uh, especially in uh, Christian community de- development work um, in uh, racial reconciliation and justice in connecting church communities and places um, and these days also in church planning and in fostering and adoption so it's it's a uh, uh, I, I can't really do uh, Reynolds and, and Caitlin uh, justice just in a short intro, so I, I would recommend that you uh, uh, get to know uh, him and them better, uh, maybe during Potluck Meal. But before I invite Reynolds up, I'll, have, um, I'll ask if Steph uh, would come up and read our scripture from Isaiah 29 for us.
1: scripture is Jeremiah 29 4 through 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon build houses and live in them plant gardens and eat what they produce take wives and have sons and daughters take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Good morning, Oak Church. How are you all doing this morning? Good. Is this an adjustable podium? Okay, not so much. That's okay. Turn, okay. I might look up and down a little bit. Um, Well, it's really great to be here this morning. Um, As Chris said, he and I went to Divinity School together, and uh, we stuck around here in Durham, and it's been a gift to spend the last 10 years seeing how God has worked in his life and his family's life as well. And part of that has been getting to see Oak Church and your ministry in this neighborhood. And so it's always good to come back here and get to witness the good work that's happening here at Oak Church, uh, to come to the Lakewood community and to be here on Chapel Hill Road and um, just learn about all the awesome things you all are doing. So thank you so much. I know that Shiloh Covenant Church, the church where I'm one of the pastors at, uh, we have been gifted to be able to partner with you on things and to be able to witness the wonderful things that are happening here. So we're really grateful to be here this morning, uh, grateful that all of us could join you this morning. Um, So glad to be here. Uh, In many ways, Chris has thrown me a lob this morning. Um, He asked me to speak on being a good neighbor. Who can argue with that? Uh, It's a nice, this is a universal message that everybody can get on board with, right? Even Jesus himself said the greatest commandment is to love God, and the second one is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, so preaching on being a good neighbor is uh, a pretty easy thing to do, right? And it, it doesn't hurt that the nonprofit that I direct, Durham Cares, has the tagline, if you've seen the bumper stickers, love your neighbor. So I spent a lot of time Thinking about being a good neighbor, reflecting on being a good neighbor, and encouraging other people to be good neighbors. But I've come to learn that a lot of times that's actually the problem. I'll never forget when God showed me this through my nine-year-old neighbor. I was, it was a particularly busy season in the life of Durham Cares, and I was running all over the place uh, trying to uh, continue to grow an organization that was growing. Uh, I was leaving my house before the sun came up and getting home before the sun went down uh, and just busying myself with doing this great work of helping people love their neighbors. In the midst of that busyness, on a day where I happened to be home during daylight, one of my nine-year-old neighbors saw me and he said, Mr. Reynolds. I said, yeah? He said, you're never around anymore. And... I said, yeah. He said, how come you're never around? And so I began to answer, and then I paused for a second and thought. And then I gave some vague answer like, oh, you know, I'm just really busy, you know, working a lot. And so he said, oh, okay. and just kept on walking. As he walked away, it hit me that I'm spending all this time trying to help other people to love their neighbors that I don't even have time to even see my neighbors, let alone love them. The problem is that I had believed the lie. And this is the lie. It's a lie that we're all told that keeps us from loving our neighbors. The lie is this, your flourishing is somewhere else. I'm gonna say that again. The lie is that your flourishing is not here, but it's somewhere else. Your well-being, your shalom, your peace, your justice, your good life, that is not here, but it's beyond here. Somehow we find a way to be somewhere else besides the everyday living that allows us to be present to our neighbors and love them as we are called. This was the lie that the false prophets were telling the people of Israel. The last two lines in our passage today, and I'm actually going to work backwards through the passage, kind of like a moonwalk exposition. Uh, the, the last line of it, I'm not going to demonstrate a moonwalk for you, um, but the last line says, Don't let the prophets deceive you. Don't listen to their dreams, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. This is what was happening. There were many prophets saying that Israel would return to Jerusalem very soon. This was a nice message for them to hear. It was positive. It was encouraging, kind of like Christian radio. Return from exile, 101.7. But not only was it a lie about what would happen, they weren't going back anytime soon. It was also a lie about what was happening. They were in denial about what was going on. They were in denial that they did some terrible things that led to their exile. Earlier in Jeremiah, in chapter 8, he says, From the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have treated the wound of my people carelessly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Notice something here. By denying the reality of the situation, failing to lament what needed to be lamented, they look right past their own corruption. Everything is okay. It's going to be okay. We didn't do anything wrong. How many of you know that when we downplay the situation, we're actually downplaying our own responsibility in creating that situation? We're actually downplaying our responsibility in creating and, and responding to that situation. Their strategy was great. If they could just lift their thoughts, lift their imaginations away from where they were, off the ground, back to Jerusalem, they wouldn't have to deal with the concrete reality of where they were in Babylon. The false prophets told them the lie that their flourishing was somewhere else, was back in Jerusalem, and that they could just pack their bags because God was going to bring them back any day now. This lie is alive and well today. It says the life that you were meant to live is somewhere else. There's, of course, the teaching that heaven is solely a place that we go to after we die and not a place that Christ is bringing to the earth. But I want to press a little bit deeper than that. There's also the lie that flourishing, peace, justice, equity, the biblical idea of shalom, that this is accomplished through initiatives and programs and professional accomplishments. How many times are you going to hear Everyone say that they are changing the world through their company, through their church, through their nonprofit, through their ideas, or through their products. Everybody is changing the world. Everybody. When I Google change the world, what comes up are cocktail glasses and uh, alarm clocks. But even things that seem to have a more concrete social impact can disconnect us from our communities we're tricked into the idea that any kind of accomplishment, a program, or an idea, an idea that's published in a book, or on a blog, or in a tweet, or an invention, or even a promotion into a leadership position, has more impact on the world than a meaningful, enduring relationship with our actual neighbors. This lie that our flourishing is somewhere else is foundational to the American dream. It's in our bones. It's in our minds. It's in the water. Centuries ago, European settlers forced themselves into this place. Columbus and his progeny believed that their flourishing was across the sea where they would find gold. This was very much a Christian mission. God had called them to go find flourishing in another place. It was, it was not just economic. And their flourishing was somewhere else. Human relationships were not just an afterthought, but they were a hindrance. Relationships were an obstacle. Out of my way, I'm off to change the world. I'm on my way to create a city on a hill. Exploitation of the place led to exploitation of the people. It meant violence and death and dehumanization, and with each acre, each new horizon, each new uh, place that they were going to, to find somewhere else, this colonial society in America was built on the cornerstone of an abstraction. The foundation of our country is not the ground that we stand on. The foundation is an idea. It's a dream. It's an American dream. As Wendell Berry puts it, and I'm gonna paraphrase him, it's always somewhere beyond us, from the manifest destiny of the Western frontier, to the horizon of the industrial marketplace, to the next invention of the 21st century tech revolution, or to the so-called innovative philanthropy of the Zuckerbergs and the gates of the world. We leave our neighborhoods where we actually are in relationship with people who are suffering and from suffering from violence and injustice to go to our offices to dream up the next world-changing vision. And that vision operates within and denies the system that is causing injustice in the first place. It says, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So, what does God say in response to this lie? God says, Seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, because in its shalom you will find your shalom. Shalom. This is this idea, this Hebrew word, its comprehensive flourishing, its goodness, its beauty, its peace justice, wholeness, thriving. It means those things for the land and for all the people in the land. It means healthy relationships between the people and healthy relationships between the people and with their God. And it has nothing to do with accomplishment. It has nothing to do with innovation or accumulation of wealth or of discoveries. In fact, there is a very real sense in which, that kind of, in which that kind of ambition is discouraged in this passage. In the previous verses, God gives them a vision of what shalom should look like. And there's something about it that hearkens to the foundation, another foundation, another cornerstone of our story as the people of God. God tells them to build houses and live in them. God says to plant gardens and eat what they produce. God tells them to get married and have children, to be fruitful and multiply. Gardens and be fruitful and multiply. Does that sound familiar? God is calling them to live as Adam and Eve were meant to live in the good garden of Eden. When God called everything good and very good, humankind was told to take care of the plants and animals in the garden to plant gardens and eat what they produce. They were told to be fruitful and multiply alongside and in communion with all the rest of the animals and the plants. They were called to marry and to have children. God had placed Adam and Eve right there where they were for a reason, and their shalom was digging deep into the roots in that garden of Eden. But they believed the same lie. The serpent tricked them into thinking that their flourishing was beyond where God had placed them. They were told that truly to be fulfilled, they needed to grasp beyond what was already there and what had been given to them. They reached for the fruit, and they reached for the idea that they would have the knowledge of good and evil and even become like God. Now, how does God rescue us from this lie that has existed from the beginning? This lie that existed with Adam and Eve, that our flourishing is somewhere else. This lie that was told to the exiles, that their flourishing was not in in Babylon, but was somewhere else. And this lie that we hear, that we are always striving for something different, something more, some accomplishment, some other place. How does God rescue us from this lie? When Paul the Apostle talks about Christ's redemptive work in Philippians chapter 2, he says that Christ Jesus, although he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. So when God became a human being, he didn't grasp at the kingdom. He was certainly tempted to, right? He went out into the the desert and the devil said, I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of the world if you bow down to me. Or, if you jump off of this ledge, the angels of God will save you. So he was tempted to do these sensational things. But instead, Jesus came into the everyday, mundane, unremarkable town of Nazareth to do the everyday, mundane, unremarkable work of being a carpenter. And when he started his ministry, he did one of the recurring scenes that we see during his ministry is that everyday mundane act of what? hanging out. Jesus brought her redemption by sitting, eating, drinking, and reclining. Redemption through reclining. The redemption that Jesus brought us was not sensational. It was by the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, even to the point of death on the cross. Don't get me wrong. Jesus did miracles. And he preached in ways that inspired awe in people. But all of that came out of his rootedness in a community and deep abiding relationships with actual human beings. And so I think it's important for me to add this caveat before I wrap up. This is not a call to inaction. It is a call to digging the deep roots that lead to action. The, so many of the saints that have inspired us, who have done great things and, and taken action in great ways, had deep roots in communities. St. Francis, Frederick Douglass, Dorothy Day, Martin Luther King Jr., John Perkins, Ella Baker. Even tonight, you're going to hear from Jonathan Wilson-Hartgrove, who has done great work in leading this Poor People's Campaign, one of the leaders in the Poor People's Campaign. But if you spend a day with Jonathan, you'll find him just interacting with his neighbors, sitting on his front porch, and, and people coming by to say hello and to share some kind of news of what's happening in the community. And so I want to I wrap up by... Um, I love the name of your church, uh, Oak Church. And uh, in the spirit of trees, I, I want to end with a tree meta- metaphor for you all. In Yosemite National Park, California, They recently finished a restoration project on their giant sequoia trees. For years, thousands of cars would drive into the forest and drive along paved roads and park in paved parking lots and come look at these beautiful trees. And they started to realize that this activity was compacting the soil and was harming the roots of these trees that had been there for for some 1,800 years, 1,800-year-old trees and their life was in danger because of what was going to happen to the roots from the compacting of the soil. So in response, they made the trees off limits to tourists for three years. Like these trees, we were meant to be beautiful. We were meant to bear fruit, to support the wider ecosystem around us, to be a blessing to the world, as God had called Abraham. But God has designed us so that there's a mutuality between between our own rootedness and the fruit that we bear for others. For the people of Israel in Babylon, God said, it's time to stop longing for somewhere else. Put down roots where you are. Seek the well-being of the city where you are. But don't do it by uprooting. Do it by planting gardens, by being fruitful, by multiplying by being rooted where you are. That is the dance that we take up every day, a dance between two things, between the shalom of the city and the shalom of our own lives. We dig deep roots, and we bear fruit. We dig deep roots, and we bear fruit. That is what witnesses to the good news of Jesus Christ, who redeemed us from the lie that our flourishing is out there, who redeemed us not by grasping, for redemption, but by coming to dwell with us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of life. Thank you that you want good things for us, that you created us to be good, and that you celebrate when we flourish. God, we recognize that when we look around at our city, if we were to say peace, peace, then we would be lying because in many cases there is no peace. Lord, help us to dig those deep roots in this place that causes us to see the pain, the suffering, the injustice in a deep, intimate way that doesn't quickly say, oh, I need to go do something about this, but that really sits in it sits in that reality. And from that rootedness, God, we pray that we would bear fruit, that we would be beautiful, that we wouldn't bear fruit just as individuals, but that we would bear fruit as a community. God, we know that you are bringing redemption. You were bringing redemption when you you sent that letter to the exiles. You brought redemption through your son, Jesus Christ, who didn't treat us like a project, but treated us as we were meant to be, as human beings. Thank you, God, for your son who was with us so deeply that the world that hated him would put him on the cross and that he would bring us new life through his resurrection. I pray, God, for this church, for Oak Church. I pray that you continue to nourish them, to give them the nutrients that they need to dig those deep roots and that they would be a community that seeks the shalom of this city, of this neighborhood, of this street, with actual neighbors, the actual people that they interact with. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.